And please turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 26. I just want to pick out a few verses together as we read uh, through verse 26 of chapter 1 into verse 23 of chapter 2. I won't be reading all the verses. Let's begin with verses 26 through 31 of chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now jump with me down to verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the yeast And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jump with me down to verse 18 as we continue to follow the creation of of man as male and female. Picking up in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken 
out of man. Let us pray briefly together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us all that we need to know sufficiently for faith and for life, for all the relationships of life, and to even navigate uh, all the challenges of this life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would feed us this evening, feed us with the truth of your word, that we may feast upon it, that we may internalize it, and that we may have it as fixed truths and fixed principles by which we may make decisions in our day-to-day lives, decisions that will be good and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in what we just read in these selections from Genesis 1 and 2, we saw man's beginning from God's perspective. We saw man's beginning from God's perspective. And that's important to recognize from the outset as we seek to answer a question like the one that is before us tonight on our bulletins. What is man? In fact, if we were to survey the history of the answers to this very question, we would say this question has tons of answers. Perhaps you were trained to think like I was in public school or from somewhere else that man was just a, 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 a mature form of a mammal or man was just a less hairy monkey. Well, at least for some of us, a less hairy monkey and a monkey that just had heightened communication skills and had figured out how to better use technology. Well, that's one answer to the question, what is man? But that answer comes from man's perspective, not from God's perspective. And there are many types of answers like this that come to us or that assault us day after day, even when we may not know it. In fact, the way we live our lives and the way that other people live their lives as we come into contact with them on a daily basis, everyone, whether they thought about it or not, has an answer to this question, what is man? Some think that man is simply uh, just a bundle of cells and synapses and uh, a bunch of neurochemicals that are supposed to be stimulated. And so man is just to get high on life, whether through substances or through awesome bike rides or hikes. Man is just something that is to be happy. Man is to be stimulated to have positive feelings. Everyone has an answer to this question on what is man. But we need to consider this evening God's answer to this question. And as we seek to answer one of the most foundational questions that we have to answer, I want to remind you that God's account of the beginning is the right and true account. In fact, it is the only first-hand eyewitness account of what it was like in the beginning, before and during the formation of man. Now, those who try to make sense of man, apart from receiving this clear account from God, will never get it fully and perfectly right. 
In fact, you and I both know that on account of man's fall into sin after the creation, you know, as we, as we move into the next couple of chapters, into Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see the fall and the effects of the fall. We see that man is fundamentally changed. He no longer thinks and acts like he's supposed to. And so man's best attempts after the fall uh, to explain his own beginnings and to explain his own purpose for existing, his own reason for being, will always fall short, will always be distorted. In fact, fallen man will always try to write God out of the story. And we see that in today's day and age. Our day and age is dominated by secular humanism. Where man, as a character in God's story, seeks to write God, the author, out of it whenever man tries to retell it. But you and I both know that's an impossible task. And you and I both know it's utter foolishness to listen to man rather than to God. But perhaps you're not convinced and maybe you need something like a sports analogy to help you. Imagine with me for a moment that there was an entire baseball game that was played. Okay, and you missed it. I don't like baseball, maybe you don't don't either, but I think this will this will get prove the point. You missed a baseball game, but you wanted to know what happened in that baseball game. Now you have two options, okay? You have two friends to choose from uh, to to relay to you accurately what happened in that baseball game. Here's the first friend that you can choose from, okay? This first friend didn't go to the game, but he studied baseball all his life, and he's an expert, at least in some circles. And he did go to the field right after the game was over, and he couldn't quite make it before the scoreboard was turned off, uh, but he was able to get a picture of both teams and all their grass stains and dirt stains and sweat stains. And he was able to... Uh, catch some of the playing field in this picture that he took, seeing some of the skid marks in the dirt and seeing some of the clumps of grass that have been torn up. And based upon this observation, based upon this snapshot that this friend had gotten after the game, and based upon his observation of it and all of his past study and all of his expertise in the sport of baseball, he began to tell you how the game unfolded. He said things like, well, the final score was 30 to 0 because this one player wearing one uniform is really happy. And this other player, as you can see in the picture, is not very happy. So he must have lost the game 30 to 0. And this happy player was also covered in dirt. And so he, he definitely got all of the outs by dive catches. And he would quickly begin to see that this friend is just speculating, he's guessing, he's making educated guesses about how this baseball game unfolded. Mere conjecture. But hey, he's an expert after all, so you may want to ask him. Maybe he's your best option. Well, let's consider the second friend, the friend who had actually gone to the game. And he came to you and said, here's the official play-by-play transcript from the radio announcer in this column. And here are my notes in the other column from actually being there. And here's the extra added depth of insight that I want to offer next to the official transcript. 
And you can see here that as my eyewitness account verifies and the official transcript tells you, the score was 2-1. to one. Here, all the stats of the runs batted in, all the strikeouts for each of the nine innings, it's all there. This friend brings you the official transcript of what happened. All the data fits, and it is corroborated by his eyewitness testimony. Who would you want to tell you about the game? Who would you trust to tell you how the game unfolded accurately? Well, I think it's quite clear it would be the second friend. And that's something like what we have here. Uh, But in a much, uh, I think, more drastic way. That we have God's eyewitness account, and not only his eyewitness account, but we have God's actual activity explained for us as God wanted his activity to be explained. And we have the official record of it. We have the official transcript, the official play-by-play as God wanted mankind to have it. And so the Holy Spirit carried Moses along to write this very account of the creation story to tell all of us, every person in the entire world, from God's perspective, what man is or who man is. And so God, in his words, uh, have given to us uh, this record in graphic detail, in sufficient detail, what man is, how he was created. And God was there. God was there in the beginning. And so it's not left up to our mere conjecture or mere speculation or to leave it up to self-proclaimed experts as to what man is. It's all right here. A divine gift from God to us. And so as we begin this evening to answer the question, and we're only going to begin, we're only going to scratch the surface of this question of what is man There's only one source that we can go to to find out accurately and infallibly and with crystal clarity. And so let's look at some of the specifics of the official record and the eyewitness testimony of God himself as to what is man. I want to limit ourselves this evening uh, to really just two basic aspects uh, of this official record that we're looking at tonight. Uh, It's really, they go together. Uh, The first part is we're going to see God's assessment of creation and man, of course, being within the scope of creation. We're going to see God's assessment. And then we're also going to see the plurality of man in creation. If that's uh, a little bit funny uh, sounding to you, I'll I'll, I'll clarify that here in just a moment. Um, But we look at the assessment of God and then the plurality of man. Okay, So let's first notice then simply this evening... God's assessment of creation, and that is to include man himself. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 1. Verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So we have the full six days of creation set before us in chapter 1. 
And all along the way, God has been looking at what he's made. And he's been saying, oh, it's good. It's good. It's good that there's light. It's good that there's the sun and the moon and the stars. It's good that there's a heavens and an earth and there's, uh, there's dry land and there's waters. And it's good that these waters are teeming with fish. And it's good that the, the heavens are teeming with birds. And it's good uh, that the land will be fruitful with vegetation and with animals and, of course, with man himself. And it seems then that as we see this assessment of God sweeping through creation, uh, that he is saying that it is good, it is good, it is good. After assessing it, after seeing it, after analyzing it, we then get this very good statement. And I think it pertains to all of creation. But it is telling that this assessment of very good, the, the emphatic good here, comes only in the wake of God creating man, or of God creating male and a female. And so, as we'll sing about here as our closing psalm in Psalm 8, uh, we're going to see that man is the apex of God's creation. Okay, there's been a crescendo through the six days of creation ending in that sixth day in which God makes man. And so simply put, this evening, one reality that we must not miss as we ask the question, what is man? When we consider this question from the perspective of creation, when we think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, man and woman, man is good. Man is very good. And I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to any of you. I know we often talk about the total depravity of man. And we sometimes lament uh, the corruption of mankind in this world. And yes, that is true. But that is after the fall. We must never forget that in the original creation and design of man, man was created good. Now, there are some massive implications in a simple statement like that. The first that I think uh, flies in the face of many today, and it's a radical notion when we stop and think about it, is the simple fact that something can be objectively called good. Okay? But we have to notice here that God is the one assessing creation. God is the one saying something is good or not good. In other words, there's an objectivity to goodness, and God places it before us in the work of creation. Now, I say that has massive implications because it does affirm for us that there is an objectivity to good. You know, we can't just get by in this life by saying some things are going to be good for you, some things are going to be good for me. And we're all just going to have to go about our happy lives agreeing to disagree on what is good and what is not good. A creation account reminds us that we don't have that liberty to define what good is as mere creatures. It is the creator himself who says what is good 
and what is not good. And we see then that everything that God has established in those first six days of creation was very good. And in light of that, then, I want us to look at one of those aspects that is very good. And it's another thing that has become extremely controversial in our day and age. And it centers around verse 27. And so we've considered already then God's assessment of creation, God's assessment of man, that man is good. And we see why then man is good here. We see that God created man in his own image there in verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing I want you to notice here is that man has a unique status. There's something that sets man apart. When I say man, I'm meaning mankind. We can think of male and female here. There's something that sets man apart from the rest of creation. And if you were to notice the break in the pattern as we came to that verse that I just read... uh, The verse before it, verse 26, begins, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And if you were just to trace up from there and look at what comes before the other things that were made, even the beasts of the field or the the creatures, uh, like livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, We see there in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth. Or go up to verse 20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms. Or you can go back up to verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights. So there's this pattern that's established for us in the Genesis narrative of, And God said, Let there be. And God said, let there be. But when we get to verse 26, we see the break in that pattern. Then God said, let us make man. Let us make man. Now, for some of you who are learning grammar, you might look at a phrase like that and say, the grammar just doesn't fit. Right? Then God said. Okay, God is, God is singular here. It's, it's rightly translated in our English Bibles as singular. Then God said, Let us make man. The singular God, or as we talked about in the Catechism this morning, the one living and true God has said, Let us, the collective us, make man. And so one of the very first things we learn in this unique episode of creation is we learn something about God before we learn something about man. We learn that within this unity of God, there is some form of plurality. Okay? 
God is saying, let us make man. And as we read the rest of our Bibles, we, we get a fuller picture of what is meant by that phrase, let us make man. It's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit saying, let us make man. Let us make an image bearer of ourselves. And then we look then at the way man is created. And it patterns this same aspect of God being one God in three persons. The plurality within the unity. The plurality of persons within the unity of the Godhead. And we see that then in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them. So I mentioned to you earlier that we wanted to look at first the assessment of God, of man in creation, and it's good. We've covered that. And the second thing I said was the plurality of man in creation. It's here that we see the plurality of mankind. In, in the singular entity of mankind, we have the plurality of male and female. We have the plurality of genders or of sexes within mankind. Okay? And as I use that language, hopefully you can see where I'm going to be going with this. That in the good creation, in the very good creation from the good creator that reveals to us the good original design of all things, we see the good design of mankind in two genders, in two genders only, male and female. And this, of course, is patterned after the plurality within the unity of our triune God. And as Bible-believing Christians, in fact, to be a Christian, many of you were at Presbytery and you heard a very important question. Uh, do you believe that the Trinity is an article of faith to be a Christian? Must you believe in the Trinity to be a Christian? And all the students answered correctly, yes. To believe in the Trinity is a fundamental and foundational truth that we must embrace as Bible-believing Christians. And then in light of that, we see that the image bearer of God, man, created as male and female, is patterned after this plurality within unity. Let me go back to the Trinity for a second. If one of those theological students had said something like this, well, I believe there are three persons in the Godhead. However, it's kind of a spectrum. You kind of have God the Father on one end, and you have God the Holy Spirit on the other. You have God the Son somewhere in the middle. But then you have an infinite number of personalities or persons within the Godhead. Yeah, with maybe three major categories. But it's all a spectrum. So yeah, although I believe in the Trinity, you know, maybe there are an infinite number of persons within the Godhead. Alarm bells should be going off in all of our minds for ever to hear an answer like that. Because the Bible teaches three distinct persons within the unity of God. 
And in like manner, the Bible teaches two distinct genders within the unity of mankind. I say that because many Christians today are being duped into the thinking of the world that there are more than two genders. Many people today, especially those who are professing to be Christians, are falling into this worldly way of thinking that male and female are just two opposite ends of the spectrum. And that there may be an infinite number of genders between those two opposite ends. In fact, Facebook has provided 71 genders for you to choose from and how to self-identify on Facebook. Now, 71 genders, that's, that's a lot. But even this number uh, has, has caused no small amount of debate because some think it's too low of a number. Others are now saying, no, it's 112 genders. And others are still adamant that, no, it's an infinite number since gender is a spectrum and it is impossible to define how many points are on a spectrum. Well, you see that God has not set up a spectrum. He hasn't revealed himself to be a spectrum of persons uh, between Father and Holy Spirit with the Son being the middle point on the spectrum. That would be utter heresy. But in like manner, as we consider the basic makeup and constitution of man, it's, a, it's a, an egregious error to treat God's handiwork, the image bearer of God, as someone who's now on a spectrum. And so, this good creation order set in place by a good creator before sin ever entered the world reveals to us the good design of God, the objective good that is as in uh, as is infallible and unchangeable as God himself, as God is unchangeable goodness. So tonight, we just scratch the surface, but we see that man is an image bearer of God, and as such, he reflects this plurality within unity. And just as God is triune, man is only two genders. There are no more persons in the Godhead than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are no more genders within mankind than male and female. In fact, the very purpose then we see of this blessing that God gives to his image bearers in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. One last comment and in light of this verse is that when it comes to the genders, we don't get to redefine what the genders are. If we want to stay within the boundaries of the goodness that God has revealed to us in his word. But we also see then the pairing of these genders. Another controversial topic, a hotly debated topic in our world today. That in 
the realm of intimate relationships. There are many today who think that you can pair up a male and a male in an intimate relationship. There are many today who think you can pair up a female and a female in an intimate relationship. But in God's good created order, we see that man, the male, has his fruitful counterpart in female. We see that the blessing of God that comes to them is to be fruitful and multiply. You and I both know that male and male cannot be fruitful. Female and female cannot be fruitful. And so, when we look at what the scriptures teach in these opening chapters of the Bible, they are foundational to how we need to define and understand goodness. These are not up for debate. They're not fluid categories. Goodness is not something subjective or relative that each generation gets to define. This is the good and perfect revelation of God to us that tells us who man is. By way of conclusion, then, I just want to remind you of why this is important, especially as the church of Jesus Christ. It's important because we know that we no longer live in the era of creation. We know that we no longer live in that perfectly good order of things, that there is now chaos, there's rebellion, there's darkness of understanding. The fall has wreaked havoc on the way that we think, on the way that we feel, on the way that we do life. But we also know in the wake of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in human flesh and offering himself up on the cross and providing a way of salvation for sinners, he also provides a way of restoration, of sanctification, of being changed back into goodness, back into perfected goodness back into confirmed goodness that we will never fall from again. But because that is the case as the church of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is renewing all things, because he's making all things new, because he's restoring goodness to a fallen world, that goodness still has to be defined by what we find here in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It is my hope and prayer that as a congregation, we will be one that is loving and open and welcoming to people who come in here and they may identify as a gender that you've never heard of. It may be one of those 71 on Facebook. They may just say, well, it depends on the day. They may come in here with their intimate, uh, a male may come in here with his intimate male counterpart. A female may come in here with her intimate female counterpart. And I hope and pray that we're going to be a congregation that is going to be welcoming and loving to sinners like that. Even as God has been welcoming and loving to sinners like us. 
But it is not loving for the church of Jesus Christ to say that is good. In fact, that is the most unloving thing we could do is to distort the truth of God and to affirm anyone in their sin. To deny anyone the restoration that Jesus Christ brings about by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we must never forget what man is. Man is an image bearer of God. And as an image bearer of God, man is good. And as a fallen yet restored and in the process of being sanctified image bearer of God, one who is being uh, refashioned after the man of heaven as we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, we are being restored to goodness. And that goodness does not include the perversions that, this, that the fall and that sin have wrought in our lives. And so, as we remember what man is in the original goodness of God's creation, may we continue to love one another in encouraging one another to that standard of goodness. And may we do so with anyone who the Lord will be pleased to bring through these doors. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you always tell us the truth. And we thank you of the, for the picture of goodness that you've set before us in the opening chapters of your revelation to us. And we thank you, Lord, that in this we get something of a picture of the goodness that you are restoring each one of us who are in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that for those of us who have loved ones, uh, who... Uh, would completely reject the goodness that you set forth before us. Lord, we pray uh, that you would do a mighty work in their lives, that you would convict them of sin, uh, that you would bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would help us to love them along the way in this process. And Lord, protect us from ever cheapening our love and shortchanging the love that we offer uh, to others or that we sell even our own selves short of so often by not looking at the standard of goodness that you have set forth and the goodness then that we are to strive for each and every day as we strive for Christ-likeness, as we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to that same standard. So Lord, be with us, be with those that we love, and may you work this goodness in us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.